Section 8 of Mysteries of London, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Keenan. Mysteries of London, Volume 4, by George W. M. Reynolds. An Explanatory Conversation. Three days had elapsed since that eventful evening on which so many exciting incidents occurred, and the scene now changes to the dwelling of Dr. Lascelles in Grafton Street. It was about four in the afternoon, and the physician was seated in his study, Lord Ellingham being his companion at the time. "'At length, my dear doctor,' said the nobleman, "'you have found leisure to accord me an hour to give me those explanations which my afflicted brother feels himself incapable to enter into at present. The loss of Tamar, whose funeral is to take place the day after to-morrow, has proved almost a mortal blow to his generous heart. But the kindness of Mr. de Medina and Esther, who insisted upon having him with them at Finchley, must in some degree mitigate his grief. And yet, alas, that bereaved father and mourning sister have themselves such bitter need of solace. Just heaven, it was a frightful catastrophe. And the murderer perished in a frightful manner, added the physician. But now that the excitement created by these appalling events, and by all the other circumstances which old death's crime was the means of bringing to light, has somewhat subsided, not only in respect to the public, but likewise with regard to the minds of those persons privately interested in the whole affair, we may venture to converse upon the topic in the hope of approaching it with some degree of calmness. In the first place, my dear Arthur, tell me how you fared with the Home Secretary. I mean, give me the details of your visit to that minister. On my arrival at his official residence, said the Earl, on the dreadful night in question, I sent up my card with a message soliciting an immediate and private audience, and the favor was instantaneously granted. In as succinct a manner as possible, I explained to the minister all that it was necessary to communicate. I told him that Thomas Rainford, who had been doomed to death and publicly executed, had survived the frightful ordeal of the scaffold. But relative to the means or the agents of his resuscitation, I proffered no explanation, and none was demanded of me. The minister instantly recollected the circumstance of having signed a full and complete pardon on behalf of Rainford, some weeks ago, and at the intercession of the king. And, doubtless knowing well the wayward character of George the Fourth, he perhaps thought that the less he inquired into the business, the better. I then gave him as much information relative to the recent proceedings of Rainford as was known to myself, and when the minister heard that he was the individual who had played so mysterious a part in the affair of Torrens, his brow lowered. But I immediately showed him the document signed by George the Fourth, and I gave him to understand that Rainford was acquainted with such proofs of the king's profligacy and unprincipled character, as would positively compromise the safety of the throne if they were published. This species of threat I was compelled to hold out, inasmuch as the Home Secretary seemed inclined to permit matters to take their course without any interference on his part. But, when he heard that the King had given that solemn acknowledgment of obligation, in order to hush up some affair of which he was ashamed, and likewise seriously alarmed, the Minister intimated his readiness to do anything I required to avoid a scandal that might compromise his royal master. He nevertheless urged that an immense excitement had already been created in the metropolis, 
and which would, of course, spread to the provinces, by that sudden discovery that Thomas Rainford had not only escaped the scaffold, but had actually taken upon himself the functions of a judge in disposing of the murderers of Sir Henry Courtenay, according to his own caprice and will. In fact, said the minister, the public will imagine that Rainford himself was an accomplice in the assassination of the baronet, and every one will ask what has been done with the two men, Splint and Pedlar, who have thus been spirited away. To this I could only reply that I was well assured of Rainford's complete innocence in respect to the murder of Sir Henry Courtenay, that he had adopted certain opinions relative to the reformation of criminals, and had chosen to test his system by applying it to those men, that the men were no longer in the country, but whither they had been sent I knew full well Rainford would never divulge to the government, and that the minister must decide between two alternatives, namely, whether he would dare public opinion in the case, or whether he would have his royal master seriously compromised. I can assure you, my dear doctor, that it gave me great pain, and was most repugnant to my feelings to be compelled to hold out any menace of this kind, but could I leave a stone unturned that would serve the interest of my generous half-brother? You already to some extent know the motives which induced Rainford to return to England, instead of proceeding to America, and adopt the disguise under the cloak of which he broke up old death's gang? said the physician, inquiringly. I gathered a few rapid and broken details from the Medinas, during the ride from Finchley to Red Lion Street, on that fatal evening when Jacob Smith came to the manor, where I happened to be at the time, to announce the awful event which had occurred, replied the Earl. But you may readily believe that both Mr. de Medina and Esther were too profoundly afflicted to be able to give me any very minute explanations. Moreover, I was myself so terribly excited, and so full of serious apprehensions. I understand. "'Twas quite natural,' interrupted the doctor. "'But pray proceed with your narrative of the interview with the Secretary of State.' "'I have little more to say upon that subject,' observed Lord Ellingham. The minister balanced for some minutes between the alternatives which I submitted to him, and it was evident that he felt deeply grieved and chagrined at the consequences of the royal indiscretions, indiscretions which had led the king to sign two important papers— both seriously affecting the proper and legitimate course of justice. But in the end he yielded to the alternative which was favorable to our wishes, and, placing himself at his desk, he wrote the order to set Thomas Rainford free, which I delivered to the Bow Street officers on my return to Red Lion Street shortly after midnight. It is therefore certain that no further apprehensions need be entertained on that head? inquired the physician. None answered the Earl of Ellingham. The coroner's inquest, which sate upon the bodies of Tamar and Benjamin Bones yesterday, elicited, as you are well aware, the fact that the old man had been imprisoned by Rainford, and visited first by Esther, and on the last and fatal occasion by her unfortunate sister, merely with a view to his reformation and redemption from a course of crime. And therefore, added the physician, public opinion is actually in favor of Rainford at this moment but how happened it that Lady Hatfield was enabled to procure that document which conferred a full pardon upon him? "'That woman possesses a most generous, a most noble heart,' exclaimed the Earl. The voluptuous monarch sought to render her the victim of his lust, and it suddenly struck her, when his designs became unmistakably apparent, 
that she might avail herself of the circumstance to perform an act calculated to exhibit her sincere friendship for me. She accordingly affected to yield in a certain measure to his disgusting overtures. She overcame the natural scruples of a pure soul, so far as to give vague promises and encourage the king's passion, in order to obtain from him the document which she required. And she succeeded. But, on the occasion of that interview with the king at which he presented her with the precious paper, she was nearly falling a victim to her generous conduct and to his brutal violence. An extraordinary combination of circumstances, however, had led Rainford into the palace on that very evening. An accident enabled him not only to deliver Georgiana from the power of the king, but likewise to extort from his majesty that written promise of deep obligation which has proved so vitally important to his interests. "'The entire affair is truly romantic,' observed the doctor. "'And now you wish me to give you in detail an explanation of all Rainford's late proceedings?' "'I am already acquainted with much concerning them, and conjecture enables me to comprehend more,' resumed the nobleman. "'At the same time, I should be pleased to hear a connected account from your lips.' It is by no means a disagreeable task for me to narrate incidents which prove the existence of so many generous traits in the heart of that man whom I was the means of restoring to life and to the world," said Dr. Lascelle. For since that day on which he opened his eyes in my laboratory, I have regarded him almost in the light of a son. I must begin by informing you that Rainford was deeply touched by a conversation which he had with you, relative to the miseries and crimes of the poor and ignorant classes of society. That conversation took place in the evening following his resuscitation, observed Arthur, the same evening on which I captured Benjamin Bones as he was ascending from the subterranean. The discourse which yourself and your half-brother had together on that occasion, resumed the doctor, induced him to reflect profoundly upon the nature of crime, the circumstances which engender and afterwards encourage it and the best modes of producing a reformation. That train of thought led him to ponder upon other matters, essentially regarding yourself. For he saw that Benjamin Bones would prove your most implacable enemy. He knew that old man's character well, and he felt assured that he would devise and carry into effect some atrocious schemes of vengeance against you. These convictions filled Rainford's mind with the gloomiest apprehensions, although he contrived to veil them from you. He trembled lest you should fall into the snares which that incarnate fiend—God forgive me for speaking ill of the dead—was certain to spread at your feet. And he resolved to adopt some means to counteract the effects of that man's malignant spite. In a word, he determined at any sacrifice to watch over that brother who had acted so generously and nobly towards him. But not to a soul did he communicate his ideas, until he had safely embarked, with Tamar— Jacob Smith, and Charlie Watts, on board the American packet-ship at Havre de Grace. Then he revealed his intentions to Tamar, and she immediately fell into his views, for she knew no will save his own. The captain of the ship consented for a reward to touch at Guernsey, and there Rainford, his wife, the youth, and the boy, were landed in the middle of the night. The next morning, your half-brother and Caesar appeared in the disguise of Blackamoors, and from St. Peter's Port, the capital of the island, they sailed for Weymouth, Tamar with Charlie Watts proceeding by way of Southampton. The rendezvous was London. 
and all Rainford's plans, so far as he could forecast them, were already arranged. On her arrival in the metropolis, Tamar immediately sent for her father and sister to the inn at which she alighted, and to them she communicated her husband's design. It was, of course, necessary to keep the entire scheme concealed from yourself, as it was well known that you would never rest until you had persuaded your brother to quit the country again, were you aware of his return. At that time you were not engaged to Esther, and she had therefore no hesitation in maintaining this much of duplicity towards you. Subsequently, I mean, after your engagement together, she felt herself bound still to guard inviolably a secret that had your welfare as its basis. Well, then, Mr. de Medina and Esther lent themselves to the project, and cheerfully, too, because they recognized all the importance of allowing Rainford to adopt the necessary measures to ensure your complete safety. Tamar and Charlie Watts accordingly took up their abode at Finchley Manor, the proper precautions being taken to enable them to dwell there in the strictest privacy, and the fidelity of the servants being well assured in respect to their presence at that house. So far all proceeded satisfactorily, and in the meantime Rainford, accompanied by Jacob Smith, whom he named Caesar, arrived in London. You may conceive my surprise when one evening, having been informed by my servant that an East Indian gentleman was waiting to see me in the drawing-room, I proceeded to that apartment and found myself in the presence of Thomas Rainford. I did not recognize him at once, but he speedily made himself known to me, and, when his plans were developed, I readily agreed to aid him in their accomplishment. As he had expected and indeed calculated, I had full and complete control over the houses in Red Lion and Turnmill Streets, and he felt convinced that you would never think of visiting them. You had purchased them merely to deprive Benjamin Bones of the power of plunging his victims into the subterranean cells, and you allowed me the use of the premises for my laboratory. Under all these circumstances, the house in Red Lion Street was the best suited to Rainford's designs and it was speedily furnished in a suitable manner. The neighbors believed that a retired East Indian merchant had taken the place, and therefore no surprise, no excitement was occasioned when they perceived that the new tenant had his private carriage and numerous dependents. But how did Rainford manage to obtain the assistance of several faithful persons, who were blindly obedient to his will, and to one of whom, named Wilton, he entrusted his entire history? They were all poor and deserving persons whom I knew well, men who had at different times been my patients, and in whom I felt an interest. Thus, in a very few days, the most complete arrangements were effected, and at just the moment when Rainford was prepared to commence operations, and when he had succeeded in tracing the abode of Benjamin Bones, chance threw him in the way of a certain John Jeffreys, whom he resolved to render subservient to his purposes in uprooting the atrocious gang. The physician then proceeded to relate the manner in which Rainford had drawn Jeffreys into his service, the revelations made to him by that individual's unfolding all the dreadful schemes of vengeance contemplated by old death, and directed against the happiness of the Earl himself, the projected exhumation of the coffin in St. Luke's churchyard, and the ferocious idea of blinding Lady Hatfield and Esther de Medina, the mode in which these diabolical aims were frustrated by the arrest of all the members of Old Death's gang, and the faithful conduct of Jeffreys. Dr. LaSalle also narrated the proceedings of Rainford in the difficult affair of Mr. Torrens, how, disguised as an old man, 
and admirably sustaining that character, he had entrapped Sir Christopher Blunt to the house in Red Lion Street, to preside at the examination of the two prisoners, and how he, Dr. LaSalle, had become a party to that transaction, all of which particulars are well known to the reader. Finally, the physician made the Earl acquainted with the nature and the results of the system of reformation applied to all the members of the gang, how it had succeeded in respect to Tidmarsh, the Bunces, Pedler and Splint, and how Esther de Medina had deputed her unfortunate sister to visit Benjamin Bones on that fatal evening which was characterized by a savage murder. There was only one point connected with Rainford's affairs on which the Earl and the physician did not touch, and this was the parentage of little Charlie Watts. The doctor was unacquainted with the fact that Rainford had some years back forcibly violated the person of Lady Hatfield, and that the issue of this crime was the boy who still bore the name by which we have just called him. The Earl of Ellingham naturally veiled the circumstance even from a friend so intimate and sincere as LaSalle, and though the doctor knew that Lady Hatfield had been a mother, he also kept this knowledge to himself, and was very far from suspecting the true history of Charlie Watts. LaSalle, it will be remembered, had made the discovery relative to Georgiana on that occasion when he attended her in her severe illness, and when he gave her a soporific, as recorded in the early part of this work. But he had never mentioned that discovery to a soul, and the Earl of Ellingham was as far from supposing that Lady Hatfield's loss of chastity was known to the physician as the physician was from entertaining even the remotest idea relative to the parentage of the boy. But Rainford was already aware that this boy was his own son, the issue of the outrage which he had perpetrated upon Lady Hatfield. Yes, on the evening before this interview between the Earl of Ellingham and Dr. LaSalle, the former had so far intruded upon his brother's profound grief as to make him a revelation which a sense of duty forbade him to delay. Rainford also learnt, at the same time, that Georgiana was herself acquainted with the fact of her child being in his care, placed under his protection, as it were, by the inscrutable decrees of Providence. But for the sake of the honour of Lady Hatfield, and of sparing Rainford from the necessity of giving unpleasant and degrading explanations to his friends, it had been determined between Lord Ellingham and himself that the boy should still continue to bear the name of Watts, and that his real parentage should be unacknowledged, at least for the present. In order not to dwell with tedious minuteness upon this portion of our narrative, we shall briefly state that the funeral of Tamar took place on the day appointed, and if the tears of heartfelt grief streaming from the eyes of true mourners can avail for the souls of the departed, then the spirit of the murdered Jewess must have received ample solace and full propitiation in those regions to which it had taken wing. But how deep a gloom had fallen upon the family of Medina, and how poignant was the anguish which the bereaved father and sister experienced for the departed! Nor less acute was the sorrow of the husband, who survived that fair but prematurely crushed flower of Israel. For immense was thy love for her, Tom Rain. End of section 8 Recording by Brian Keenan